I received the phone call. I was happy. I was excited. I was scared. All that kind of stuff. I was a little flattered, to be honest. It kind of it kind of boosted my my ego a little bit. You know, he didn't I, didn't. I was nobody. He called me to ask me to come do this, and so I did it, and felt pretty good. And then two days later, I got another phone call from the board of ordained ministers, saying that I had failed my ordination. Now apparently that didn't matter. Those two conversations did not go together. <laughs> Uh, I was being told at the same time, go start a church, and also you're not quite ready to lead anybody yet. Uh, and so uh, my ego went from being deflated, uh, inflated to deflated, and out of protest, I put on the collar, and I went to Caribou Coffee in Briar Creek, and I sat down to have myself a pity party. <laughs> I sat down, and I pulled out this notebook, and I started writing in this notebook all the accusations against the injustice of the system. I started making a hit list, y'all. I started calling people out by name. People who were on the board of ordained ministry got written into my notebook, and I was talking about their personal lives and how their lives were not in line with the, uh, the call of God that they had just said I was not called with, too. It was good. <laughs> I was sitting there writing, and my writing got more and more fervent, and my words got more and more sharp. When I felt somebody kind of looking at me, you ever felt that? Just, you just feel somebody looking at you? I looked up, and sure enough, this woman was staring at me from across Caribou, which is not uncommon when you wear a collar. You kind of get looks. And so I gave her my most pastoral smile, the reassuring church head nod. <laughs> and I went back to writing and making my hit list and calling out all these people who had uh, done this injustice to me. Before long, I felt the presence standing beside me, and I looked up, and before I could say anything, this woman was standing beside me, and she said, Are you a priest? I looked down at the documentation saying that, no, I was not ordained. <laughs> and I looked back up at her, and I felt the collar around my neck. And so I said, sort of? <laughs> and she said, oh, thank God, I'm sort of a Catholic. And she sat down right across from me. You know Caribou Coffee has these tiny little tables. She sat down across that tiny little table from me, uninvited. She moved my notebook aside, put her coffee down. And for the next hour and a half, y'all, this woman confessed to me like I'd been her lifelong priest. She named all the ways that she yearned for church, but she felt this guilt because she couldn't go. When she went, it just disappointed her, or, or maybe she disappointed herself, and so she didn't know whether she should engage or whether she shouldn't engage. She talked about the guilt that she carried as, as feeling like she was never enough at home or at work or with her friends, and wherever she was, she was not able to be present where she wasn't, and that kind of carried around this guilt that she just couldn't find a way of laying down. For an hour and a half, this woman confessed the burden that she was carrying. And at the end of it, she looked at me and she said she felt lighter. And she said, but you probably don't know what it's like to be disappointed in the church or to feel like you're disappointing others. <laughs> and I looked down at my hit list and I closed the accusation. And this woman became my priest. And I confessed to her the weight that I was carrying. And the disappointment that I was embodying that name. And, and probably, if I was honest, it wasn't that I was disappointed in the church. I was scared that the church was disappointed in me. like that. She looked at her watch and she said, well, it's been great talking. I feel better. I hope you do. And as quickly as she came, she was gone. 
when the scripture about, scripture about entertaining angels unawares came to mind. As this stranger in caribou converted that small table from a coffee table to a confessional, and we both felt the freedom that comes with sharing one another's brokenness, naming it, and shouldering it together. I sat down, the table felt small, and I felt heavy. When I stood up, that table seemed like it could fill the whole world. And somehow I felt lighter. I didn't know it, but my strange angelic friend in Caribou was singing Psalm 32 to me. Psalm 32 is, is one of those penitential psalms. It's a psalm of confession. That is, Israel used this psalm whenever they were moving into the world of confessing their sin. Those times, those special feast days, when, when Israel would go up to the temple and make sacrifices for their sins. They had a certain songbook that they sang, and Psalm 32 is one of those psalms. If you were ever in a, a moment of needing to personally confess, then the rabbi would come and give you the psalm book, and the psalms you would sing were psalms like Psalm 32, which are songs of penance. But here's the thing, y'all. Psalm 32 is not like the other penitential psalms. Psalm 32 is not uh, filled with the normal lyrics like those other penitential psalms are. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. It ain't in there. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Those were all the other penitential psalms, but not today. Not Psalm 32. Psalm 32 begins with the word happy. It ends with the, with the word joy. Psalm 32 comes masquerading as a song of penance, but it's actually a praise song, y'all. It might be written in a minor key, but it carries in its words the joyful hope of new life. Psalm 32 is no pity party. There's no room for accusation on Psalm 32's table. This is a psalm that makes space for the joyful and life-giving work of confession. Psalm 32, in, a, in an odd way, becomes this, this, uh, this note in the middle of Scripture that retunes the sacred story. You might have noticed, if you've read Scripture, you've read Scripture, right? This side has. Y'all should check it out. <laughs> it's an amazing book. Check it out. All through scripture, there is this discord of accusation all the way back, y'all, to our great-great-great-great-great-grandparents in the garden. When we first misuse creation, and our instinctual reaction to that misuse is accusation. She made me do it, he said. The snake made me do it, she said. You shouldn't have put it here in the first place, the snake said. And all the way through, that discord of accusation gets laid upon the shoulders of humanity until it becomes a burden that we cannot carry. Cain accuses Abel of trying to be God's favorite and kills him. Moses accuses the Egyptian and kills him. King David rapes Bathsheba and then blames her husband for not being there. Accusation always leads to death. Do you see that? It becomes this weight that we carry as we are accused, and it becomes a heavy burden of weaponry that we carry into the world to accuse others. 
it will crush your bones, it will kill your spirit. Until Psalm 32 comes back and retunes that discordant song of accusation. That's the tune that Jesus picks up on the cross. When we accuse him, he responds not with more accusation, but with confession on our behalf. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. The gift of the song of Psalm 32, the gift of the song of the crucified Christ, is simply this, that it opens up the possibility of confession in a world infatuated with accusation. Now this is a word for us, y'all. Because we are in a highly accusatory moment. We are in a moment that is shaped by a call-out culture. The game today is to call out the sin of the other loudly and in a way that leads to death. Whether we're talking about the president's Twitter account or the 24-hour news cycle. And I don't care what news you're smoking. It can be Fox News, it can be NPR, it can be BBC, it can be Univision, it doesn't matter. All of the, the entire game of this call-out culture is to name the sin of the other, however you deem that, as loudly and as in condemning a way as possible so that we might bring them death. Here's the thing. I know that me standing here as a white male saying that uh, we should stop the call-out stuff might sound like I'm just saying, hey, stop calling me out for my stuff. <laughs> Can we go back to the good old days when uh, I could kind of just parade my sin uh, with, um, without consequence? But here's the thing, y'all. Nothing could be further from the song that we find in Psalm 32. The psalmist isn't happy because sins are being ignored. The psalmist isn't joyful because someone's domination of sin allows others to assimilate silently into their sinful existence. The psalmist is singing the song of happy joy because there's actually for once space for confession, which opens up space for repentance, which opens up the possibility of a new way of being. Call out never creates that space. Only confession does, church. And the gift of the crucified Christ that we get to embody, the song of Psalm 32, that we get to sing into the world is the life-giving space of God creating room for confession that we might be made new. Here's the difference. A call-out culture is interested in retaliation. Confession is interested in restoration. A call-out culture is interested in remittance. Confession is interested in recreation. A call-out culture leads to death, both for the called-out and the one who's doing the calling. Confession leads to resurrection. 
That's why this psalm is paired within, within the, uh, the lectionary text. That's why today the church around the world is singing this psalm, uh, is also singing it alongside the gospel story of the prodigal son. Y'all read the prodigal son on this side? I know y'all have it. Y'all read the prodigal son? Y'all know that? Luke 15? Y'all should go check it out. It's phenomenal. Luke 15, there's this story of the prodigal son where this kid says, I'm going to get what's mine and tells his dad to drop dead, takes his inheritance and runs off and spends it on all sorts of things until finally the shame and judgment of his life is weighing him down and he's face down in the dirt until this gift, this melody, maybe the Psalm 32, the spirit starts to hum in his spirit and he says, forget this judgment, I'm just going to go confess. And so he starts practicing his confession all the way back until he gets within eyesight of his father's house. And what happens? The father runs. Note this, church, this is the only time God runs in Scripture. Running towards the one who is embodying the posture of confession because it's only that posture that allows new life to become embodied. And so the son comes back, and in that confession, the son's restored and redeemed and healed. But the son's not the only one in the story, right? There's also the other son. Who's more interested in calling out than confessing? He calls out the younger son for what he's done. He calls out the father for being unjust. unjust. And at the end of the story, there's a party going on. And the only one who's been called out of the party is the one who's doing the calling out. Inside, there's joy. And there's happiness. And there's new life. Confession is the only thing that can spur on that joyful song. So here's the thing. Insert. Just from what I know of you, uh, it seems to me that the entire church around the world is singing your song today. Psalm 32 might just be your favorite hymn. You say that race is always on the table. You know that there's a lot of groups in a lot of spaces, they're trying to deal with the wreckage of white supremacy and all the things that that's piling up around us and on top of us. The gift that you bring into that space is the divine work of offering space for confession. Making space for all to name the ways in which that evil and injustice is breaking us. And be made new. You know about the injustices of the economic disparities that continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? Y'all know about all that in your bones. You know that. You know that apartheid is not something that's locked away in South Africa, but it cuts right through Southeast Raleigh. As neighborhoods are divided and changed and homes are divided and hearts are divided, you know that. And the gift that you embody in the midst of this growing apartheid is the gift of confession offering space of confession of sins from you, from one another, from your neighbors. It's the only thing that leads to life. It makes you divinely unique, being a people who carry confession in the midst of a call-out culture. So my request of you is to practice singing your song.
practice confessing your sins. Confess them to God. Confess them to each other. Confess them to the world. Confess the ways that that these powers and principalities are weighing down on you and on us. Confess them to politicians and to preachers and to school boards and to HOAs. Confess them wherever you go until there's space made for others to join that confession and find God's new creation to be embodied among you. Be a people of confession in the midst of a world infatuated with calling out. And watch God's work take flesh in you again as you show up and bless and offer beauty. Come with this big idea that confession might be God's way of saving the world. And as you do, watch Raleigh join in this sacred work until this little table gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the room of accusation falls away. And all people rise up and call you blessed.